When the choice seems to be to tear down the church or build a wall around it, we aim to walk the narrow road of nuance through the wilderness between the warring factions and try to figure out what it means to love God and people well. Hello, folks. Welcome to Unbetween. This is kind of the first official episode of season two, which is going to be all about art and its intersection with faith. And we hope to talk to a whole wide variety of different kinds of creative people about the art that they make and how their faith informs their creative process, how they balance their relationship with God, with the needs of creating. And if they do it for a career, how they kind of walk the line between the needs of, on the one hand, the industry that their art exists in, and then to staying true to their own sense of, um, of what they want to express and how their faith shows up in that. This first conversation is with a gentleman named Josh Porter, or Josh Dies, as you may know him. Josh was the vocalist, is the vocalist of Showbread, has been for darn near two decades now. And he is involved and has been involved with a whole lot of other different kinds of creative endeavors. He's written novels, he's written comic books, he's recorded with any number of different musical projects, he's done video. He is currently pastoring in a church out right outside of Portland, up in the Pacific Northwest, and he's somebody that Ryan and I have both appreciated and admired for a number of years now. We were super stoked to get to talk to him. We will drop all the links to the stuff that he's up to in the show notes, and I'll mention them briefly in the outro, but without any more jibber-jabber on my part. Let's hear from Joshua Stephen Porter. Well, uh, thank you again for taking time to talk to us today. So our uh, we um, we've kind of finished our quote season one, and a lot of that was just talking about a, a little bit. Of, of what the show is about. So I'll digress on that for just a second and then we'll get into it. But um, we realized that um, we were having trouble having conversations with folks because it seemed like a, a lot of people were landing uh, firmly in one ditch on the side of the road or the other about issue X, Y, or Z, and that there was kind of a lot of tribalism going on and, and what you thought about a particular issue or theological point was seemed like it was being determined by, well, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm progressive, I'm conservative, I'm this denomination, whatever the case may be exactly, and that so many of the issues we get worked up about it's just not that simple a lot of the time. And there's a lot to think through and work through and wrestle with and all that kind of stuff. And we we noticed people would tend to do one of three things. They would entrench and kind of build a wall around themselves and keep people they didn't agree with out of it. Or they would dis or excuse me, they deconstruct, which is, oh, let's tear everything down and we don't need to keep any of this. And or they would disengage, which is like, well, Screw all y'all. <laughs> I'm just going to go over here by myself. And that for for people of faith, none of those three are what we're kind of called to do in response to when kind of weird stuff happens. And so we talked a lot about that. And the kind of current series of conversations that we're having are are about art and specifically art made by people of faith and uh, kind of how to walk the line between uh, of faithfulness, really, of how do we create art that reflects what God is like, but also reflects the reality of what life under the sun is like for us and, and kind of where do we land on all that stuff? So we wanted to talk to people who also are having 
having to now or have had to in the past live in that tension and uh, both you individually and and showbread and the other kind of musical and artistic things that you've been a part of have been re, uh, really important and meaningful to both of us. And so we thought, well, this this dude probably has a thought or two that he wouldn't mind throwing out there. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything to add to that? No, that's that's perfect. And yeah, I mean, just a lot of your kind of art and music has been telling. I told Taylor I actually went and, and rewatched your uh, the ten year of nihilism you know that that kind of video last night i was just like man this is perfect and just the thoughts behind that and the music the floor is darn near caving in i'm telling you so <laughs> it was uh that was good to do and just um yeah excited to get to hear from you and, and talk with you about this oh thanks man yeah thank you guys for having me i do have a thought or two i don't okay. know how <laughs> how good they are but they're in there we'll find out won't we yeah that'll be it for you guys and i, I guess your listeners to decide and decide we will or they will and let us know so uh the first conversation we had the first episode in this series we um we talked about that uh creativity is really important to god in the scriptures that's what he starts out doing and and it's less about in in the first couple chapters of genesis it's less about creating something out of nothing and more about bringing order out of chaos and that that theme runs through the rest of the scriptures you see him bringing order to the day and the night and separating the animals into different kinds and then later on bringing abraham out of where he was living to set him apart and then rescuing israel from egypt and forming them into a people at sinai and so on and so forth you you find god creating order out of chaos and the Bible itself is such a work of art in so many different ways, so many different kinds of literature and depth and, and all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of started the conversation talking about God's directive to us to kind of be, to be creative and to make things that reflect what he is like or his truth. So um, what, where did that start for you? I mean, it, Obviously, one picks up a guitar at some point and starts making noise. But when did it kind of coalesce that, you know, this is really what I want a lot of what I spend my time doing to be about? Um, I wish that it went from where you've where you began and forward. You know, I wish that I had some kind of I was inspired by the story of God and to emulate his creativity. I doubt many creative people, even creative people who uh, love God deeply go that way. I think, you know, you have uh, kind of an innate wiring um, for creativity. And uh, as pretentious and stupid as it sounds, I do think that there's, you know, we now kind of have a whole like culture of anyone and everyone can, um, is a creative and can be a creative uh, we have more tools and resources, more accessible tools and resources than we ever have. And, and that has spawned a few cool things, but there's, there is, uh, you know, to your point, Taylor, in the scriptures, a, um, I think, you know, a, a clear uh, paradigm for the idea of some, God has wired some people for art and creativity and other people are have other wirings and dispositions. Other people are called to different vocations. You know, in the building of the tabernacle, there's this whole weird thing where you get all these long instructions about how detailed and ornate God wants this thing to be and all the different imagery that he wants to weave into the tabernacle. And he specifically says, you know, that he wants people who are qualified 
um, and gifted mm. to make these things. Uh, he doesn't ask Moses to, you know, be become a carpenter or yeah. become a he gets you know, a mason to build all these things. He's yeah, he's, exactly. Uh, and so I do think that there are, you know, there are just people who have that kind of wiring disposition. There are other people who uh, wish that they did. There are many things I wish I could do and have realized along the way. Oh, I can't do this. This is not <laughs> my gifting. Um, so at some point, I think I it had some to do with that initial spark and wiring. I was drawn to, you know, uh, film and uh, comic books when I was a little kid. Reading, I, I had a mom who was really into literature, and she gave me like when I was really young novels by Kafka and Sylvia Plath, and um. Some something in me was like, oh, uh, just took for granted. This is what you do. This is what I do. And then I would write and draw and kind of throw anything at the wall <laughs> of uh, creativity and see what would stick. And there was a time when I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'm going to draw. I'll be an illustrator. So I was really into, you know, X-Men and Wolverine, and I would draw superheroes, and I wasn't very great at that. Uh, writing was the thing for me that seemed to connect uh fastest and that had some kind of uh reciprocation from other people people would come along and say oh it seems like you you're not horrible at this thing um music <laughs> was an ob- uh, especially the discovery of uh punk rock music was the thing that uh made music realistic for me and my friends we yeah. at first mm. Uh, had grown up, you know, my dad played Queen Records for my brother and I and Aerosmith, and those were the, some of the first uh, albums that we would actually sit around listening to the Aerosmith album Get a Grip and say, like, we're going to start a, a rock band like this. But uh, to be a guitar player as good as Joe Perry is extremely unrealistic <laughs> for, you know, unless you're a prodigy or something. and. Uh. These, you know, like to listen to a Queen record. We were listening to a Night of the Opera and thinking, like, yeah, we're going to start a band like this. I still don't know how to do that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but then when we, <laughs> when we got into punk rock music, and you know, you have a guitar and you start to realize, like, I can play this song. <laughs> and I think yeah. that that is as dorky as it sounds. That ev- everything interesting that's happened in the in the punk rock movement from you know. Uh, the earliest kind of charmingly amateurish, but it they found a niche and it worked like the the Ramones or then you know later your uh, Kurt Cobain's or or Green Day or something like that. They're like we can build an empire around these three chords, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we thought we'll do that. We and and that became the thing that was like oh we we found something that we can do and that we like to do and that there's at least a few people who think. That they like that too, but you know the. I've always had the whole. I don't know exactly which thing, so I do lots of stuff, and people tend to think that, oh man, you do all these things. That must there must that must be so impressive, uh, and it's not don't some kind of false humility, but do a whole lot of stuff. That doesn't mean that any of it's particularly great. It just means that. <laughs> I stay busy and have lots of ideas, you know, that you may or may not like. I, I tend to like them, but yeah. Well, you two, 
but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ryan and I were talking before you logged on, and we we were talking about about showbread and 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 some other things. And he was he was asking me, so what what connected you first to kind of what to all that stuff? And I said, honestly, I think I appreciated. This is not me buttering you up necessarily. Uh, I I think I more appreciated. There are people out there that have this artistic vision, and I connect to that more strongly than I do the art itself at times. And so, like hearing you and your brother and and some of the other folks that have that have played with Showbread over the years, or reading the books or whatever, um, I found myself connecting to and appreciating more like the artistic vision or the uh, <laughs> manifesto, if you like, that behind it, and and more than the actual thing. No, I can relate. I think that there are uh, there are often for me, and sometimes it's been frustrating because sometimes it's like I like both, but mostly I appreciate the ethos of this particular artist or writer or band or filmmaker. Um, and sometimes it's like uh, I like the aesthetic, but I don't necessarily like the um, the execution yeah. of the thing, yeah. and not in a way that like I think it sucks. It's just like I don't think that part of it's for me, you know. Uh, and then sometimes I've been able to um, barrel through that frustration and find a connection and be like, okay, now I think I get it, and I connect with the actual art and not just the ethos and the aesthetic, you know. The um, I got into Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds late in my life so far. Like I didn't, yeah, I was always aware of Nick Cave and thought that, man, this guy seems so cool. I would read quotes from him and, and quote him without really being into his music. I couldn't connect (laughs) with the music. Um, Yeah. I felt like I was missing something and it frustrated me. I kept trying to find an inroad and being like, I just don't really get it. Uh, but then I actually specifically sat down with some friends and we listened to the entire discography from start to finish um, with a little bit of, you know, space to breathe in between. And I, and I learned to really love it. And then I really got into Nick Cave's music after having liked him as a person, his <laughs> philosophy, his aesthetic. Um, and then there are others that, that we've taken that same approach with and it didn't work. Like the, uh, you know, the South African rave rap band deantward i always thought that they're they have such a it's like watching uh, a train wreck man (laughs) you just can't look away provocative and like aggressively uh alienating that i always thought like oh that's really interesting and their music videos are obviously super interesting and yeah um but the music i was just like i just i don't think that i'm personally a guy for rave rap uh, yep. There's something that I'm missing. And I tried, <laughs> I did the whole thing. I listened to the discography as well. And it's like, no, I just don't think it's for me. I appreciate the philosophy. I appreciate what I'm assuming is a kind of elaborate performance art. Uh, you would, but you the would actual hope thing. in their case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting um, that you say, I, I, I kind of feel that, uh, I felt that with people like Muse, we're like, okay, this is really good. But I don't know if I like it or not. It's it's weird in that way. Was was there a and Ryan? Don't let me talk over you this whole time. Okay. No, you're good. I, I was going to make one one quick observation on that. I mean, I think it's also interesting. There's some talking about kind of people who are creating it. There's a lot more people that if you can connect with them, that it just feels more natural what they're doing, and you want to seek that. We we talked on the last uh, kind of season or whatever about how quick we can can write people off. And I think it's quick for me, at least when I hear something I don't really like, just to kind of drop it. 
where there may be more behind it if you can connect with a person. But uh, a lot of times that's tough for me to, to want to do or to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's a bummer. I mean, I'm in the exact same boat. I think to a certain degree, we can't help it. We've been, uh, our attention spans have been debilitated to a depressing degree. Uh, And I don't think it's, you know, unique to a certain type of person or even a generational thing. All of us have so much instantaneous access to art and entertainment that, you know, the joke, the old tired joke about Netflix is that people just look at thumbnails and never watch anything. Or, you know, (laughs) I remember when we first uh, got access to Spotify in North America and I remember reading about this thing and hearing about it and thinking like, that can't be real. Like what the heck <laughs> would, the, it, how the heck does that work? And when we got it, you would think, especially as people who really like music, that this would be this incredible thing that, you know, and at first it was, it was like, uh, Oh, this hard to find record that I don't have a copy of anymore. I can listen to it. Like what you just type yeah. it in and listen to it. Or this band that I always wanted to try, but didn't want to invest and didn't know where to start. Like I can listen to them now. Um, but then it becomes that uh, when you have access to everything, you listen to nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And when you have access to everything, it's like the idea of having, you know, I'm really dating myself, but, you know, growing up, you have, uh, I would have like a handful of Nintendo games, the cartridges, and you really appreciate every single cartridge because it cost 50 freaking dollars and <laughs> yeah. you brought it home and it wasn't amazing. Like you were going to play the crap out of it either way because it's the new game that you got, you invest in it. The same thing was true of records. You save up your hard earned whatever allowance or job money and go to drive to a store, buy a record, bring it home. And there was this experience where you like would tear off the plastic and open it for the first time. It had like a smell and a texture to it. Oh yeah. 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 Take it out and put it in and look at the artwork while you listen to the thing for the first time. And, uh, often, you know, we bought records that weren't that great or that we didn't like, but now you spent $15 on this thing and it's the only new thing that you have to listen to. Then you're really, really going to give it a try. But when we've invested yeah. nothing at all, you just open up, you know, Frank Zappa's discography and see a million records and go like, whatever. And you click on one, it starts playing. You're like, I don't get it. And you turn it on. I mean, this is an actual story about me. <laughs> uh, then it becomes really, really difficult to invest. You have no, you know, intellectual incentive to invest your time and your resources into anything or, you know, to Ryan's point, to... Um, to actually try to pull back the curtain and learn about the story about the artist and the the music the story behind it, uh, that would take time and that that would take precious mental energy and emotional investment. And we can just click on the next thing or scroll down to the bottom and it says, "Here's somebody else you might like them mm-hmm. better." You click on that instead. So there, to a certain extent, we can't. Re- there are things that we can do to try to curb that, but we can't really help it that's the we've been beat down into a position where we have such decrepit attention spans that you know not everybody you know to go back to my whole nick cave anecdote not everybody is going to say no i really want to figure this out so i'm going to listen to the entire discography start to finish while i read the wikipedia entries about how they were made you know and all that kind of crap but when you do that you find a way to appreciate the artists it just takes so much more time and investment than we're used to When I sit on the machine, not 
Yeah, I, I think that that segues well, because there's, gosh, we, we could talk for three hours about this quite easily, <laughs> I think. But uh, one of the things we talked about in the kind of the first episode of this conversation was that everything you just said is is correct. What does that mean for people of faith who are, uh, to some degree, called to engage with God and with each other through art? If our attention spans are so... Um, debilitated and our our willingness to invest our time and our energy and attention into something are are reduced to the simplest thing that people can sell us basically how does that affect our liturgy how does that affect how we relate to each other in community and kind of what's been i mean you're you're not touring anymore you're still making stuff but now you are pastoring a community of believers so how is what you just described show up in a church context and what can we do about that Man, this the, the odds are against us. The, <laughs> the, there are several, to my estimation anyway, uh, several really big significant barriers between at least the kind of Western Protestant tradition, especially the, the branch of it that we used to call evangelicalism, but we don't want to as much anymore because it's been tied up into a kind of a political term, but for lack of a better way of saying it, the kind of uh, mainstream American expression of Protestant Christianity has such a hard time accepting the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. Um, Mm. I think that it's not just that we don't understand it, we actively deny that it exists, the <laughs> spiritual discipline of art appreciation. And it's a huge, huge problem for disciples of Jesus. Uh, and for a number of reasons, the, I mean, the first being tailored to your point earlier, that the story of the Bible is not like, this is not like a nuanced minority theological opinion. Like if you just read the Bible and I know I sound like a fundamentalist or something, but in the (laughs) kind of in the surface reading of the scriptures and down into the nitty gritty nuanced, you know, academic reading of the scriptures, God's enthusiasm for art and the importance that God would, you know, that God, assigns to art, the way that God expresses himself almost exclusively artistically Hmm. (laughs) throughout the scriptures, that most of the Bible is poetry, that the entire Bible is a story, that when God presents himself as a revelation to other people, it's always artistically, it's always with imagery and crazy symbolism, that the way that God relates to his people from the Old Testament into the New Testament is with symbols and sacraments and theatrics, that the way that God communicates um, even his covenants, the way that he re, you know, establishes relationship with people is through artistic imagery, artistic hmm. practice. Uh, and then we sit back and say like, eh, that's for you know, hoity-toity, <laughs> or that's, that's for artsy-fartsy people. Oh, yeah, like, gosh, man. That's... But not only that. So that's the first huge thing is that, like, you'll just have a problem with the story of the Bible and with God. You know, God is the original artist, and then God is uh, the, the amount of space that God dedicates to creativity, aesthetics, art, artistry in the scriptures. It's like, it can hardly be overstated. Hmm. 
And, you know, the way that Israel, I can go on forever and ever, the way that Israel would experience God was come into the temple and there would be all this imagery and sounds and smells and music. And then like this, the kind of stuff that now the, you know, American Christian tradition would say like, this is so unnecessary. This is so pretentious. We don't need this. This is trying to cultivate an emotional experience. You know, the... Uh, we don't need all this stuff. We just need the Bible, you know, and then like you open the Bible and the Bible's art. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the huge barrier that comes up right after that, if you can get people to understand that, which isn't really like, it's not like you need a debate. You just, it's kind of the clear, <laughs> you just open the dang thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, the, the barrier that you hit right after that is that people, I think that maybe the number one contributor to biblical illiteracy is art illiteracy. Hmm. People come to the Bible and they become frustrated and, you know, um, they give up. They, or that, you know, the, one of the leading causes of deconstruction amongst millennial disciples of Jesus or quasi former disciples of Jesus is biblical illiteracy. I hear the thing all the time. It's like, how did you escape biblical fundamentalism? How did you get past this biblical literalism? And, you know, the answer that is almost always given is I deconstructed, I left my tradition, I left my faith, I found a new community of, you know, quasi God is a fruit roll up kind of thing. And then (laughs) uh, the, the answer to me has always been the obvious, like the answer to fundamentalism and literalism is literacy, is biblical literacy, not deconstruction. So Evan Wickham said that, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, biblical literacy is contingent on art literacy. Hmm. If you get to the Bible and you're like, oh man, what the heck does this mean? Why did God do the animal sacrifice thing? What's up with this story? Why don't these facts jibe? Um, it becomes a problem of not knowing how to read it. Yes. And then we Whew. immediately run to dismissive things like, uh, oh, it must be wrong. It must have contradictions. But no one goes into a museum you know, and looks at a painting and, or <laughs> no one with their wits about them, goes into a <laughs> museum <we> <laughs> and points at a painting and says like, uh, you know, I use this example in, uh, in the book I've just written of Francis Bacon, who's uh, painted these kind of surreal, nightmarish uh, portraits. And he painted lots and lots of self-portraits, but he's recognizable. You can look at it and you can say, yeah, that looks like him, but it's, they're extremely bizarre. Like his face looks split open and he's got like teeth running up the side of his head and um, it's kind of surrealist and slightly abstract. And if you know anything about, uh, I only know a very little about the discipline of painting, but I know enough to say that, okay, so based on the genre of painting and based on the style of this particular artist, uh, that's a self-portrait. You know, he intended to communicate something about himself with the self-portrait. That's him. Uh, but it doesn't look exactly like him according to like photographic realism. So if somebody were to say like, that's painting's totally wrong his face isn't purple he doesn't have teeth running up the side of his head his Mm -hmm. face is not but you would someone would be within their rights to turn around and say it's not wrong it's just that this is the type of painting that this is so in the same sense you know when people come to the scriptures and they're like what the heck this is messed up or this is wrong or this is unethical or this is you know this makes no sense or these these facts don't connect um it's all a matter of knowing what you're reading and how to read it and that you know has uh, all kinds of uh, fingers into things like you know you know biblical literacy is is a huge discipline uh, hermeneutics and theology and learning you know historical stuff 
But a huge, huge part of that, I would think, I think personally, arguably one of the biggest parts of that is art literacy, is learning to see that like God is creative. He is the creative force in the universe. And if you read just a normal story without having to dig deep and learn literacy, it's painfully obvious that God cares about aesthetics, that God cares about art, that God cares about ex- expressive, like even abstract art, surrealism. God is the original abstract artist, the original surreal artist. God does satire. God does comedy. God does black comedy. God does, um, you know, there, there's even like a, a, a selection of Bible scholarship that argues that Job might be something like a play. So there's all kinds yeah. of different genres throughout the scriptures, you know, you have the whole apocalyptic literature thing. We don't even have a paradigm for it anymore. That's how bizarre. And, and it's not like we made this stuff up. God, yeah. God chose to have the Bible sewn together this way, collaborating with human authors. So the, you know, like we, there's a divine author, author and there's human authors and together all of them working in conjunction over all the, you know, centuries of time and across the world and all these different languages, you get this book that is painfully, artistic even the way that it's put together is yeah. artistic the, yeah. the formation of the scriptures the way that the story fits together and if you can understand that you don't even have to understand every single detail of how it all fits together and what every single thing means but if you can come to the scriptures with a baseline understanding that it is inherently artistic from start to finish then you won't freak out when there's a talking snake on page two, you know? <laughs> and you don't even, you don't even have yeah. to get into all these arguments about like, well, is the snake a literal talking snake? Is this a poem? Is this, you know, narrative? Is this history? You can at least say to yourself, okay, well, there's God is artistic. This is creative. Um, I don't have to just immediately throw it away when it doesn't jibe with my modern post-enlightenment worldview. I can say to myself, there must be something going on here. Maybe it is an actual real talking snake. Maybe it's a poem. I don't know yet, but I can work with this book and I can keep going. The same way that you can look at Francis Bacon's self-portrait and not go, what the heck? That's not what he really looks like. Screw this. You can say, okay, I just don't understand exactly what it means, but I understand that it's a painting. It has a genre. It has a style. And you can go from there. It's always interesting to me how, how, as believers, we're willing to say, yeah, there's things about God we don't understand, or there's mysteries, but then when we come in, in front of it, we're so quick <laughs> to write it off. Like, yeah. no, I don't understand that, so I'm just going to leave it alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I was just thinking about the way that, um, you know, in uh, Colossians, Paul has this whole bit about, you know, celebrating that everything that we can know about God is revealed in Christ, full knowledge of God in Christ. And then he says, you know, like the, the, he talks about having full knowledge, complete understanding, but then says the mystery of God, as if these two things are inherently interwoven, that they're irrevocably tethered together, that God is knowable. He's a person that like we can actually learn about God, connect with God, have a relationship with God. But at the end of the day, um, it's God. So that there is you know, a mystery. And I think that there's this weird back and forth where there's a certain group of the church who kind of wants to go immediately default to mystery. Oh, what are you, who are you to read all these books and try to understand God? God is God. This is so ridiculous. We can't understand God. And you're like, well, you're going to have a problem with the Bible because God (laughs) seems to be just deeply concerned with self-revelation to other people. Mm -hmm. He wants people to know and understand him. The whole 
New Testament is on and on and on about like, you know, depth of insight to pursue God with your mind, to know God with understanding. And then the other people, they want to go, you know, kind of wall themselves off in an academic world of books and say that like everything that we can know about God can be filed neatly into these systems and we can resolve God ultimately. They probably wouldn't use that language, but it seems as if like every single thing has to be run through the machine of their theological system. And at the end of the day, that becomes frustrating because it's still God. So you run him through the system and a lot of things I think that you can learn. The systems can be helpful. I'm not anti-systematic theology, but God comes out of the other end of the machine and he's still God. So that there's going to be things where you're like, oh, this is weird. I think that it's a comforting and freeing thing to admit God's weird. God is a very weird artist. Um, he, if you read the scriptures, he sounds like the stories of the most um, <laughs> eccentric artists that we have in our paradigms, the kind of people that were like, these guys were, you know, like Van Gogh, what the heck was he doing? He cut off his ear and all that stuff. Like, God is weird. He gets these ideas in his head about the way he wants things done. You know, there's the whole thing about <laughs> uh, God expresses to a prophet that he wants him to, you know, lay on your side. For yeah, that's exactly and, what I was about to say. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you're going to have to cook over poop and um, <laughs> go around and you make a little set of like Israel, knock it over like Godzilla and say, this is going to happen to you. Dig through um, this wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the weirdest way to communicate to anyone what's going to happen. And God knows in the beginning that it's it's kind of a foregone conclusion. He tells the guy, you're going to do all this, but they're, they're probably not going to listen to you. And he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, that sounds to me like an artist. He's like, the expressiveness, expressiveness is as important as the message. And even though, you know, read Jesus, the stuff that he says is so alienating and bizarre, you know, like, uh, and he has so many opportunities to clarify, to sponge away the misunderstandings <laughs> about his parables, and he, and he won't do it. do it. <laughs> he won't do it. They're yeah. like, Imagine, you know, we romanticize the stuff post, uh, you know, closing of the canon. We understand what Jesus means when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we're like, it's beautiful. And it is, you know, it's like the, the Lord's Supper, communion. It's mo- one of the most beautiful sacraments in the history of the church. But he just stood up in front of a group of people and said, everyone's going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then they're all like, well, I guess that's it for me. I'm out of here. <laughs> and or I then, think of the, uh, like the whole the parables where he never bothered to explain himself to the crowd. And occasionally the disciples would get the benefit of like a nugget or something, but he, like he'd get up and say these things and then just walk off and you have all these people sitting on a hillside. Like, do, do you, do you understand? Did you get it? Yeah. And then he, he expressly communicates to the disciples that that's kind of the point. They're like, well, why won't you just explain if you'll tell us what this one thing means? Why don't you just tell everyone what all of them means? And he says, well, the, you know, like this, it's the point. There's like the truth is kind of hidden in this thing and you have to, earn it. Again, that sounds like an artist. That sounds like the kind of artist that we dismiss as pretentious and, you know, hoity-toity when they say like, oh, you know, I I don't want to say what it means. You you read it and you decide what you think. Um, Jesus did that first. (laughs) So this is a... a I think this is a good segue because one of the things that uh, both Ryan and I wanted to ask you was that you you mentioned kind of art that is difficult and alienating. And Showbread and you have made 
your fair share of art that people have called difficult or alienating. And at times, um, like we mentioned in the first episode, some of the reaction to your double album, Anorexia Nervosa, that some Christian bookstores refuse to carry it because of some of the narrative content. And, you know, um, I, I just I'd be curious to hear what you feel like the guardrails are, because on the one hand, like we mentioned Ezekiel, there's some really gnarly stuff in there. There's very like in there of Song of Songs, there's stuff that's very sexually explicit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that is very, very violent in the scriptures. Um you know, and there's an, there's something to be said for you have to depict something as bad as it actually is to understand the depth of the need for redemption and all those things. And I know, or at least I think I've heard and read you say in more recent years that, you know, Showbread was at times deliberately antagonistic <laughs> for 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 the sake of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that you, you might have had a little bit of perspective on that now on some of the things that you did. But anyway, um, so what. How do you make sense of that dynamic now? What, if any, are the guardrails or kind of the checks that you put in place personally to know when, ah, you know, that's a little gratuitous versus no, it just needs to be that stark or that bleak or that explicit? Yeah, I think there's three things. Uh, I th- And it begins with the admission that the, you know, the American church or the Western church, at least in the Protestant tradition, has lost the sense of urgency for the spiritual discipline of art, artist, art appreciation, and that it needs to be re- rediscovered. Um, we kind of walled ourselves off, and I think that it, this was a difficult thing to research, but it seems like it began um, out of the you know the satanic panic of the '80s and '90s. At least that's when this thing kind of solidified in the Christian culture bubble in America. Um, after the Manson murders in the uh, 70s and Anton LaVey published the Satanic Bible, um, I think in 1969 or some, sometime around, there, these things kind of coalesced and there was this uh, rampant fear in American Christianity of the devil specifically showing up in art and entertainment. It wasn't just that. There was all this kind of stuff about like worries about satanic ritual abuse and the exorcist that the novel was published followed by the movie. And that became a huge phenomenon. And people were like really, really scared of the devil. Um, And they were scared that the devil, one of his primary ways he was going to show up was in rock records and (laughs) uh, in children's cartoons. And um, so I grew up, you know, in the whole like, uh, culture is kind of guilty until proven innocent. And most of the time, even then we can't trust it. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't allowed to mo- like a lot of ki- uh, Christian kids who grew up in the eighties and nineties, we weren't allowed to watch certain shows or weren't allowed to yeah. listen to certain music. And, um, my dad, you know, he would sneak us records like here, I got you this Aerosmith record, but don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> and then he'd get in trouble. People at church would be like, Oh, why'd you get them this thing? You know, they're not supposed to be listening to that. Um, and so it created this thing where we said, well, you know, if people want art and entertainment so bad, we'll make our own, we'll make the equate brand version. Um, but it has to have rules. It has to have really strict rules around it to keep it from being bad. Uh, so you got the Christian, you know, machine, the Christian industry that cranked out, um, contemporary Christian music, uh, which, you know, we've always had, there's always been Christian artists. There's always been Christian music, but there was a time where you can turn back the clock and see that the art 
that Christians made was just art, that it didn't have its own, it didn't exist in its own ghetto, it didn't have a big wall around it to keep mm-hmm. it out from the rest yeah. of culture. It wasn't scared of culture, and culture wasn't really scared of it. In fact, people are usually surprised to discover that a lot of great influential names in art were Christians, were like, in the, and unashamedly so, you know, like, and, so, and some of them have still crept into the, they've gotten, somehow they got a pass, like Flannery O'Connor is yeah. one of the world's most beloved literary figures, and she was an unapologetic, devoted Catholic, she wrote about Jesus all the time, um, somehow she got a pass. And she wrote, but, you know, the Christian community, especially the American Christian institution, um, was afraid of people like Flannery O'Connor because she also wrote uh, honestly, I would say, well, you know, and she wrote things that were grotesque and upsetting and offensive. Um, but we had no space for that. We had no paradigm for that in the Christian bubble. In fact, there was a time when um, Amy Grant's Heart and Motion record, was, <laughs> I uh, it was nominated for a Dove Award, which was kind of like the Christian answer to the Grammys. And uh, there was a huge controversy because... Um, I think the song that was nominated was her single Baby Baby. It was a great pop song. Um, and the Christian music industry kind of coalesced or like kind of conspired against Amy Grant and said, it doesn't say anything explicitly about Jesus. And, you know, Amy Grant was kind of like, well, it's, you know, it's about my baby. It's about my kid that was born. It's a love yeah. song for my kid that was born. Um, celebrating the love between, you know, like mother and child. <laughs> and they're like, eh, it doesn't say anything explicitly about Jesus. So this thing shouldn't mm. be eligible for an award. Um, when the industry should have been saying like, oh my God, thank you, Amy Grant, for making us look like real people. Yeah. You, know, like, <laughs> you, yeah, you made a pop exactly. record that they actually play on the real radio. You are a godsend. <laughs> you are giving us some little modicum of credibility in the mm-hmm. world. Thank God for you, Amy Grant. And thank God for your beautiful song about your kid, you know, and even the people who didn't get it should have just been like, hey man, God bless Amy Grant, what Amy Grant was doing, but they said, no, you can't be in our club. As an aside, I don't want to interrupt your throat flow too much, but we talked about on, on the last episode that like when we were younger and you're, you're about three years older than us, I think. So kind of same ballpark, but there used you, bands used to play at churches and there used to be venues where you could go and there was there was an outlet for that. Now, if you want to be a Christian and play music, you can be in a worship band and that's it. Yes. And like there's no, and the typically there are outliers, of course, but the kinds of things that sell and make it to any kind of a wide spectrum of people don't buy, I don't want to be overly critical, but I don't think they reflect real life in the same way as what you just described. By and Yes, large. I agree. You know, there was a, there was, you know, the jump forward for a second, there was a time around the early 2000s where a strange, inexplicable thing happened specifically <laughs> in the um, kind of Christian, for a lack of a cooler way of saying it, like we'll say the alternative music mm-hmm. Uh, world where the punk bands and hardcore bands and indie music bands or the independent world of Christian music found an inroad into um, a culture, into being accepted by the culture. And it just was, and it lasted for a a decent stretch where um, bands like the band that I was in just played with other bands. And it wasn't like they didn't know that we were Christian. They did um, there were Christian labels that were intermingling with the other aspects of the industry, and somehow they earned for themselves a certain credibility. And that's the the world that I entered into to make music. You know, I found out about 
Tooth and Nail Records and bought an MXPX record in what would have been like 1995 or something like that. And I remember putting it in and thinking like, this just sounds like a real punk band. It was incredible <laughs> to me. And, yeah. you know, I open up the liner notes and here's a photo of my Carrera in a Rancid shirt. And I was like, oh, this guy listens to Rancid. You know, like I couldn't believe that the, there wasn't, it hadn't been tidied up, you know, yeah. for my consumption. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, oh, that's really fascinating. And then you're reading about the fact that MXPX is on tour with Lagwagon or just a normal punk band. Um, and somehow that kind of, they, they, I, those kinds of bands, probably, especially in MXPX, I'm guessing, but bands like them kind of did the hard work of (laughs) paving a road that we could drive down. And then we did, we were just driving around on this road, hanging out with other people being accepted in this certain wing of the industry, not necessarily in like the big boy mainstream. There were acts like, um, I guess your PODs and blindsides that came along and, uh, somehow they like you know, broke through and they were accepted. It wasn't a secret that they were Christian, but they were accepted by their audience in the mainstream. But for the most part, it was kind of like this quasi underground. I say underground because these bands were still like on the billboard top 200. So they were successful bands, but they were certainly in an, still in an independent sphere of the industry. Yeah. But that was, and that somehow that didn't shape the rest of the Christian entertainment industry very much. It kind of stayed relegated to that wing. And then like you said, Taylor, it switched. And at some point it didn't work anymore. Um, probably owed in part to the death of the music industry itself. Well, that's and another that, three hour podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, worship music is still one of the only things that um, is profitable and I'm not accusing worship bands of only being after money, at least not all of them, but it became a thing where it's like, oh, we can, we can actually have a career this way. We'll go this way. And I know lots of musicians who existed in like punk bands or, you know, indie bands and said like, if I want to play music, um, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to go on tour and play guitar with the big worship band. Uh, but if you rewind back to that whole idea of, so we had this we created this problem for ourselves where now not only does anyone understand art itself in the western christian tradition the protestant tradition but now we think that the only place for it is in the bubble that we've created the safe mm. bubble that we've created so if you step outside of the bubble now you're not you know you're not making the right thing anymore you're going to get your hand slapped you're in trouble uh, which again creates huge problems with your reading of the Bible. You're going to say to yourself, yeah. "Why on earth does God choose to express Himself in often such strange, offensive, opaque kinds of ways?" Um, and it created a crisis, uh, you know, innumerable crises of faith for people who couldn't figure it out. They were like, "I've been told that you know you should this should be clear that God is inoffensive." Um, so it must just be the case that it's just not true. That's the hmm. they they saw like a kind of a binary between it's either true or not true. It's either historically accurate or not historically accurate. And you're like, it's actually much more complicated than that. It is true. We have to understand truth on the Bible's terms. It is historically accurate, but first century um, historical accuracy and and prior doesn't work the way that modern American historical accuracy works. So anyway. You got that whole problem. We're now when we're on in our own bubbles and frustrated. I think a lot of people our age and around that general idea became frustrated with the limitations of the Christian industry's constraints on artistic um, freedom and expressiveness. So 
you know, the tooth and nail bands that I was just talking about and their, um, the people who came along behind them, like my band, uh, we were the ones getting our hands slapped for, you know, being like, oh, they're not Christian enough. We became the new Amy Grants. By the grace of God. <laughs> and I'm proud. That needs to, be to show the, up on a, yeah. <laughs> on a shirt somewhere. <laughs> the new Amy Grant. Yeah. Um, we became the ones who were like, oh, it's not, this is, uh, this doesn't really fit the, the formula. And we had a place that we could still express ourselves as an outlet. Like you pointed out that there were some of our records that the, the actual um, Christian industry, came, I mean, it's very funny that these are uh, personal personified and individuals, but I would get calls from Capital Christian Music, the lady who runs the distribution of the Christian wing of Capital Records, and she would say, Oh, you know, the people are really upset about this or that thing. Can you write a little card that explains how it's actually really Christian? And then we'll put that in there and that'll appease them. There was a time when that's what bands were having to do. You'd open up a thing and a little paper would fall out and it would promise you, you know, that the Squad 5.0 album was still Christian, I promise. Um, it was, and I thought it was so embarrassing. It sounded so <laughs> inauthentic and compromising. So I was just like, I mean, and I was also like, um, you know, 19 years old and 20 years old. And I was like, no, I'm not writing no freaking card. Yet. <laughs> they can just not carry it for all yeah. I care. And then they would be like, oh, they're not going to like that. So um, now you've got the whole thing where we just decided we were going to barrel through. And there are lots of people who are like, man, this is dumb. I was raised. I wasn't even allowed to watch the Smurfs for God's sake. Now I'm just <laughs> going to, the whole world of art and entertainment is open before me and I'm just going to accept it all. It's kind of like, the um the, you know the classic deconstruction paradigm uh but specifically for art the thing that you get from sheltered christian kids is you know the the old adage is they were so sheltered and then they found the world and they rebelled against their upbringing and blah <laughs> yeah. blah 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 it's a cliche but it also happened in art where we were like we weren't allowed to watch or listen to anything we got a glimpse of something that was interesting and we're wired for that we're wired to be drawn to art even people who aren't themselves creative are called by God to appreciate creativity and to seek out creativity and to understand creativity. And I think that's the huge thing that people don't understand. They think that like, you know, Christians think, okay, well, that's great. Even if they try to develop a paradigm, they're like, that's great for creative people, but I'm not one of them. Well, you are also called to appreciate creativity. You know, it's God himself is the original artist and, you know, the Bible itself, blah, blah, blah. So, we started to just go out there and we're like, we're going to watch R-rated movies. I'm going to listen to this freaking, you know, Pantera record or whatever it was. That's like, for me, it was just like someone snuck me a copy of a white zombie album and we're like, whoa, this is amazing. Um, and then it became like, well, I don't know how to, how do you, it became an arbitrary measuring stick that was different for everyone. Like, oh, it's cool for you. You know, that was the thing I ran into in high school where I was still, was really into Jesus and still liked the, the tooth and nail records and stuff like that. And people would be, that's cool. That's cool. And they didn't have any problem with, um, you know, my peers at the youth group and stuff were like, Oh, that's cool. I like, you know, whatever was the acceptable alternative record at the time. They, they would own the green day record, but then they'd be like, Ooh, you bought nine inch nails. What the heck? That's too far. And I'd be like, well, what's, yeah. the, what's the difference? Who says, why is it too far? Obvious. There are obvious surface arguments you can make about one kind of music is more extreme than the other, but it made me realize that, um, who, how do we discern 
Like, what are the guardrails? So finally, after that half hour, this is what I'm getting at <laughs> with, your, with your question, Taylor. I think that there are three things. Um, one is uh, that, or the the predecessor. So I guess I'm not done. The preface <laughs> to to the three things is that you have to understand that the the scriptures um, do not give you a clear black and white guidebook for how to appreciate offensive art properly. They don't say this level's fine, but don't go this far. In fact, like if you set the the bar that a lot of people set would rule out the Bible to your oh, point, yeah. Taylor. There's all kinds of graphic yeah. stuff in it. And in some cases that has been the case in the you know the tradition of the church. Like um young Jewish men are not allowed to read Song of Songs until they're 13 years old or whatever, after their bar mitzvah. Then you, then you can read the, the book with all the explicit sex poems in it. Um, <laughs> and, and it makes sense. Like There's stuff yeah. that I don't read to my kids that's in the Bible. There are Bible, the kids' Bible stories that I look at and I'm like, nah, we're not reading about <laughs> a- Abraham yeah. and Isaac at wait this on that point. You, yeah. you won't understand it. It just sounds weird. You will understand it later. But there's other stories that are beautiful and so... Um, I think that you just have to go into it knowing that it's not as black and white as we would like it to be. And yes, that can be frustrating, but that doesn't mean that we're hopeless. So the first thing is um, a sense of Holy Spirit conviction. Um, I think that if we are learning to grow in our spiritual formation, spiritual maturity and reading, you learn about your own brokenness um, the more that you become self-aware as a disciple of Jesus. You know that you have a certain bent. You know that you have a certain uh, limp to, you know, and that's, and that's just who you, I, don't, I don't mean to be like fatalist about it, but I think that this side of resurrection, we're imperfect. And the things that I've learned in years and years of therapy is that like, yes, you grow in maturity and yes, you grow in spiritual formation, but you have a certain kind of brokenness to your personality to your wiring to who you are as an individual so for me personally like i have a tendency to lapse into um kind of nihilistic way of thinking into despair into uh a dark place in my mind if i'm left to my own devices and there are certain forms of art and entertainment that can push me in that direction when I'm already in a precarious position in my thinking. So, you know, the story that I use sometimes is like, I love Black Mirror, the anthology, sci-fi anthology series. I think it's like profound and prophetic even. Uh, But there was like a time I remember being like in a bad place in my um, discipleship, a bad place in my thinking and feeling and was, and was watching a new season of black mirror. And I was like, this is not a good idea for me right now. (laughs) Black mirror is so aggressively bleak. Um, I had a similar experience recently. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I, and I love it, but I thought, this is feeding my inner, you know, like a, what I would call like the, the shadow side or my brokenness. Mm, It's like, yes, life sucks. Um, everything's hopeless. People are awful, and and since I'm so affected by art, uh, it was working. You know, I was just like, and, and I, I was going to it to scratch that itch of like, yeah, this does suck. I'm going to watch another episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I should never, under any circumstances, watch Black Mirror. That could be the case. Uh, but then I learned, you know, I took a break from Black Mirror and I got out, I crawled out of the abyss, and you know, did 
more work and more formation and then came back to it. And I'm able to appreciate what Black Mirror is saying without feeling like, yeah, the world does suck. I think everybody has that. You know, I know lots, so many uh, men and women who are in recovery for addiction to pornography. And they know that like, yeah, this movie that has this uh, simulated sex scene isn't necessarily in and of itself an evil thing, but it's not really smart for me to watch it because it aggravates this sense of my brokenness. And then that makes me want to, you know, go and get more. Whereas, you know, I know other men and women um, who it, they're, it's not to say that they've never struggled with lust and they're so above it and beyond it. But, you know, the the 30 second passing simulated sex scene in the R-rated movie isn't necessarily going to make them go, oh, I'm going to rush out and, you mm-hmm. know, watch pornography. It, it, it triggered this thing in me and or they feel perfectly fine just looking at their shoes for 30 seconds and then looking back up when the scene is over. Um, so I think understanding in your formation and where you're at in your season of um, life and your stage of apprenticeship is hugely important. If you're brand new and you know that already your mind is like really supple and you take in new ideas like a sponge, then you want to figure out those kinds of things before you rush at every extreme idea and take your time to grow in maturity. So that sense of uh, Holy Spirit conviction is one thing. And the other thing that goes right with it is just discernment that comes o- over time. You know, like uh, I don't necessarily feel convicted to not watch um, the Lars von Trier movie Nymphomaniac, which has like actual uh, unsimulated sex scenes in it. Apparently it's like uh, aggressively pornographic. I really like Lars von Trier as a director. Um, even his really shocking movies, I've found at least to some degree interesting. And I was like, oh, he's making a new movie. That sounds really cool. And then I read about it and I was like, I think that I will not watch Nymphomaniac personally. It doesn't even mean necessarily that I would imme- dismiss it as inappropriate for everyone who's ever lived. I don't know because I haven't seen it. Uh, but for me personally, I was just like, I just don't think I need to see that one. <laughs> um, knowing, knowing what I know about it, I think I'll pass. The same thing is true with like, I've seen a lot of like extreme, you know, horror films that are on everyone's list of like the most shocking movie ever made. But there's a couple on those lists that I'm like, I just don't think I'm going to watch that one personally. And it might not even be as bad as the other one that I have seen, but knowing enough about it, I have enough discernment in myself to be like, I just don't, I would just be seeing that to titillate myself with how shocking it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I'm actually interested in the story and maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's, I'll take that risk. So um, conviction discernment. And then the final thing that is the most important thing and has to be done in tandem with the first two is community. I don't think that you can make these decisions in a vacuum. I don't think that you should be making them by yourself. I think that you have to make them with people that know you and you know them, that your life is open to them um, with with all of its brokenness. And it doesn't mean that they police you. It doesn't mean that they make decisions about what you can and can't see. But you have a community of other disciples of Jesus who come around you and say like, dude, you were telling me that you are in a dark place right now, that you don't feel good, that you've been struggling with despair. And then you just told me that you spent all night watching Black Mirror. What the heck? Like, don't <laughs> yeah. you see that those two things are probably connected? And and if I said, no, it doesn't affect me at all, you know, they would say like, listen, I know you well enough to know that that's probably not true. Like, it's probably affecting you. Why don't you consider taking a break? You know, like that's accountability. And it's fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus. We hate 
accountability because we have this paradigm of like, no one's allowed to speak into my journey and tell me my truth. My truth is my truth and it's for me. Oh, but it just Lord. doesn't work if, you've, <laughs> if you follow yeah. Jesus. Um, and they, they can make mistakes and they will make mistakes. You know, I've had people come to me and correct me um, with graciousness and gentleness and lead me in the truth. And I've had people like condescend to me and uh, selfishly say like, oh, you just did this and you're probably wrong. for." So it's, it's not going to be perfect. There is no perfect paradigm for it. And I've had lots of conversations where I've heard people out and said like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I'll definitely think about it and pray about that. Um, but I, you know, for me personally, I don't think that it's true. Um, I think that this is safe for me, but you at least there's an account, there's a web of accountability that you're going into. And it's not just like, you know, Josh is off on his own, making his own decisions about every single thing that he listens to and enjoys. And, you know, it's just the, the weird thing of it is, is that every single thing we tend to think that like, well, this for sure has to be bad for everyone. Um, and that becomes really problematic, uh, because there are things that, you know, are, overtly what I would describe as uh, satanic, as in the, the the artist intended to communicate something that I think is evil. And it really just has no, po- it's no pot. There's no possibility yeah. that this thing is going to influence me to go join a cult. You know, um, it's it, it, some of it is silly to me. Like the, one of the things I use in my book about art is the, uh, the um, movie uh, by Robert Eggers, the witch, uh, which was an indie horror movie. It's not all that extreme by any measuring stick. You know, it's pretty intense if you're not used to horror movies. I thought it was a cool movie. It wasn't like it didn't change my life or anything, but I enjoyed it. And uh, it became a controversy when it was officially endorsed by the Satanic Temple. <laughs> <laughs> which if, so, if you know I, about anything about the Satanic <laughs> Temple, it's just some people. It's just some people on the internet. You know, it's all, all I can think of is when this came up on your movie podcast and the yes, copy that, exactly. that dude wrote exactly. for it. It's hilarious uh, because these people are not um, theistic Satanists. So they don't actually worship the devil. It's just like a philosophy, you know, kind of out of uh, Anton LaVey's like, or Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law so satan for them is just like a a figure a symbolic figure and they were like yes the witch um but if you've seen the witch you're just like these people didn't even understand the daggone movie it's it's like kind of like seeing the exorcist and saying that it's satanic it's like clearly in the context of the movie the thing that's happening is bad not good um but people were up in arms briefly and in a small way about like oh my god the satanic temple endorsed this movie how bad must it be and I remember being in a seminary class where it came up and somebody was just like, there's just, we, that's what you got to draw the line. I mean, like the freaking satanic temple is endorsing this thing. And I was like, even if that filmmaker specifically intended to make a movie that's like, yeah, the devil, wh- wh- who cares? Like, uh, yeah, I watch the thing and I'm like, there's just no way. I don't mean to sound so um, arrogant, but it would take so much more <laughs> for me than a horror movie with a goat to say, (laughs) to say, oh my God, this devil guy is making a lot of sense, you know? The same way that I can like, I can read the article from the satanic temple, which is what everyone did and not go, man, this guy from the satanic temple is making a lot of sense. You know, this is uh, ushering in a new golden era of unfettered inquiry. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Forgive me children for I have sinned. I never asked you first The way in which I wrote this song The pen which 
It's funny that you say that because we do the same dang thing with the Bible, though, don't we? Like we we approach it and and it's like this is in here. That means this whole thing is bad. And look, look at the way they were treating women, or look at this, uh, look at these sacrifices, or or look, they didn't they didn't go out of their way to condemn slavery, or you know whatever the issue is. And it's like y'all, that's. That's, there's something else going on here. Will Listen, you slow something. down a minute? Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, exactly. It all comes back to a, um, I think personally, so, so much and maybe most of biblical illiteracy is birthed out of art illiteracy, where you want to tell people, you know, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people about satire that, you know, you read, um, how can you, you know, the thing that I've often got is how can you be a pacifist and write novels that have such graphic violence in them? It's like, because I don't like violence. So mm. in order to satirize violence, you have to depict violence and hopefully communicate that this is ridiculous. Um, you know, like that. And, it, and to me, satire is one of the more subversive genres of film literature or, or you know, whatever it is, because you get to comment on the thing within the thing itself. Yeah. I took my kids to see this. I didn't like it personally, but I took them to see the freaking Peter Rabbit sequel, uh, which was became this hilariously meta, like it was commenting on itself and how these characters have been ex- exploited, um, that they came from these <laughs> beloved children's books. And now look at them. They're in these ridiculous movies with special effects and jumping out of planes and stuff. And um, I don't know how well it stuck the landing, but I was trying to explain to my kids afterward. They were like, how come, you know, they're asking questions about it. I was like, well, the movie's kind of making fun of itself. It's saying that, look, it is the thing that it's saying is bad. Um, the same way that, you know, I'm explaining to my son, like, you know, in Jurassic World, when Owen says, uh, why aren't, you know, like dinosaurs should be enough. Why do we need these hybrids? He's also commenting on the sequel that like it's we're no longer impressed by a movie about dinosaurs. You need a hybrid in it. But he was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Like people have a, a fundamental misunderstanding about satire. If you knew what satire was and if you knew how satire works, then you could understand why the Bible depicts things without necessarily commenting on oh, the yeah. morality of them every single time. A lot of times it does. And I mean, a lot of times it just openly and blatantly condemns evil for evil. But the Bible doesn't bother commenting on every single scene of history or every single poem or every single, you know, anecdote of an evil thing and saying, by the way, just so you know, still bad, still bad. We haven't changed our minds. But if you know how to read the whole thing, then, you know, like, oh, when you get to, you know, David and his polygamy, you're like, what the heck is he doing? This is evil. It's broken. And the Bible doesn't have to stop and tell you just so you know, still bad, you know. But if you have no paradigm for it, then it screws up your whole thing. The the one I was about to say, David, and then you beat me to it. But the the other thing I think is Solomon, where back in Deuteronomy, Moses says, here's what a king's supposed to do. And it's super simple. He's supposed to be a Bible scholar, basically. And then he says, okay, now don't amass a bunch of gold. Don't get a bunch of horses and chariots and all this kind of stuff. And then in, I think it's in first Kings when it starts describing what Solomon does, suddenly all those things start popping up and the narrator doesn't stop and tell you now, dear reader, as you can see, Solomon is beginning to veer off the path. It just puts his, as Tim Mackey of the Bible project is fond of saying, it presents their choices to you and it expects that you're going to engage in that Psalm one, you know, go, go meditate kind of way. And you're going to see what you're intended to get from it. Yeah. It's yeah. as if 
it is a work of art. <laughs> yep. Well, and it's, it's back to the point. Like you're not going to get that if you don't read the Bible in its whole. If you're sitting there and picking out these pieces because they apply to what you want them to, you're going to miss all of that. And that's, I think, what the, the church typically and we as believers do a lot of times. Yeah. And how often have we had conversations about, oh, I heard that that movie has this part in it. Or, mm. oh, I've heard that that book <laughs> has this scene in it. And therefore, what the heck? It's messed up. I mean, a lot of cancel culture is built on the whole it says this or it has this scene or we should get rid of this show because it has this thing in it. And sometimes it's just true that there's problematic stuff in the, in the, in artistic content. But a lot of times it's like, well, I mean, but what about the context? What, in what context Mm -hmm. is there, is that thing? You can't point at a novel and say it has this part in it. Like, okay, why? What's going on before? What's going on after? What does it mean? Like one thing to say, like, you know, this is in there. Uh, it's another thing to say, like, why is it in there? And what does it mean? And what did the artist intend to communicate by having that in there? You, you know, mentioned uh, the, the violence, particularly in the Old Testament, is a problem for a lot of people. And yeah, yeah. zooming back out and reading it, you see this is all happening because these people would not do what God asked them to do. And he's like, OK, we will do it your way and it's going to be bad and it's going to be messy. And I, I'm not going to I'm going to keep my side of, of the of the bargain, as it were. I'm going to you're, you're my people. I've set you aside. But like this is going to be way harder than it had to be because you've insisted on doing things your way. Yeah. And think about um, artists with cult followings that love them deeply like i i was never able to here's another one of these people i was never able to connect with the films of david lynch who made movies like Eraserhead and mulholland drive and lost highway um but i appreciate him as like an artist he's really interesting to me i like to listen to his interviews and things like that uh but the fans of david lynch that i know personally are fanatical about david lynch they think that they're like oh well they're like well, you got to watch uh, a racer head 10 times and, and notice this detail and notice that detail. And then if you know this about him personally, you'll see that this thing is in there and it's incredible. And I remember thinking like, man, this guy's movies are so abstract. I don't want to put this. And I, I think of myself as a, a person who likes the layers, but I'm not doing this much work for David Lynch personally. <laughs> it didn't connect with me the first time. I'll just, I appreciate what he's doing and I'll leave it to you. Um, but David Lynch seems to have, I don't want to speak for him, but he seems to have designed things um, in such a way that well, it's going to be lost to the majority of the audience, but to a certain group of people, they're going to love it so much more because of the way that he's put it together. And uh, just about anyone who appreciates it, it doesn't have to be as weird as David Lynch. Like uh, the people who obsess and nerd out about the art that they like, they they want those layers. You want to dig deeper, and it's so much more enriching to not have everything on the surface, to not have everything given to you, to like listen to an album for the hundredth time and go like, Oh my God, I just heard something I've never heard before. And now that makes sense to me to watch a movie for the hundredth time. And, um, you know, I, I showed, uh, the Jim Henson movie, the dark crystal to a friend of mine a little while ago and we were watching it, you know, all huge on in HD and, uh, and they turned around to me afterward and said, like, it seems like if you watched that a lot, you would see something different every time. And I was like, I just noticed something that I'd never seen in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And this has to be like the, you know, the 70th time I've seen it. And that's how the, the Bible is. The Bible is designed yeah. to not give up all its secrets on a surface reading. And the, the, the authors and the author with a capital A 
assume that the reader is going to invest themselves in it. You know, back to what you said, Taylor, about the Psalm 1 paradigm, meditates on the scriptures day and night. It says right there in the book (laughs) that the way that you understand it is by meditating on it day and night. That is not, you know, Gone Girl. That is not uh, the pop book, the, you know, uh, and I'm no, no offense, Jillian Flynn to Gone Girl or, any, or anything <laughs> like that, but it's not that kind of genre. It's not like a Taylor Swift album. It's not designed to like, you put it in and you know right away whether or not you love it. It gives up everything it has to offer on the surface listening. It's this kind of thing. Um, and then you dismiss it. It's more like an abstract, um, complicated, deep, layered, like layered miles beneath the surface and on top. And you read it the first time and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to wrap my head around. You watch it again, you watch it again, you watch it again. Um, the bi- and then because of that, it's what it has to offer is so much more profound than if it had just said polygamy bad. So make sure you understand that. And violence, not good. Remember how I said that? You know, if it had footnotes all throughout the thing yeah. explaining it for the, you know, it, and people, as a general rule, we tend to think that, like, you have to be super intelligent or super sophisticated in your literacy of art to understand stuff. But then something every now and then comes along in the world to remind us that that's not the case. Like, think about the way that there have been um, sophisticated, like, say, a Hollywood movie that comes along. Um, you know, I think of the films of someone like Christopher Nolan. He makes complicated movies that are much more... Um, owed to like the films of the 70s or, or something like the way that they're paced, the way that um, they're rolled out in terms of narration and how much uh, exposition there is and isn't. And people come out of those films and they love them. They, people are like, whoa, the mainstream audiences love a movie like um, Interstellar or what was, the, what was the one about the dreams? The name Inception. Inception, Inception. Yeah. yeah, Inception. Uh, and those are, are fairly sophisticated science fiction concepts or Tenet or something like that. And it's not even that they totally understand them. I left Tenet and I was like, I don't know what happened, but that was awesome. <laughs> um, and then the, all the way home, you know, people are doing what we did in a bygone era of filmmaking going like, what do you think that was? And remember this part? That was kind of cool. I think maybe this meant that. And you just know in your mind, you're probably going to watch it again and then try to figure it out a second time, a third time. And those are normal mainstream moviegoers, not like, uh, you know, abstract art connoisseurs, not uh, David Lynch fans, people that would never be caught dead watching, you know, Lost Highway, <laughs> but they loved Inception or they loved uh, Tenet. And, we're, and then we're reminded like, oh, there's something in us as people that we don't, not all of us are always going to like the same things, but we're wired to no. dig into like creativity and aesthetics in a way and look for the truth in those things. Man, that's good stuff. I'm trying. I'm trying to give you all something <laughs> worthwhile. And, and, and isn't it, I mean, I can't help but think if this is what the scriptures are like, that must be what God is like. And in our own small way that we experience him, or at least, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 35 now, so I've, I've spent some time with God. And the more time I spend with him and realize what he's like and go through things with him there, you realize, man, I'm not there. I have so much more to learn. And and I I think of the parable Jesus tells where he's like, this is a storehouse full of treasure, 
and the wise man brings stuff out of it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I think that that's part of the the journey of discipleship. I think most of us that if you have followed Jesus for a significant stretch, if you came to faith at some point younger in your life, and then when you reach um, the second stage of life around 30 and after, uh, there's an invitation to a deeper kind of discipleship. And the first stage of discipleship is crucial. It's important. That's when you're really hungry for information and learning. It's when people, if they're going to go to seminary, they do that kind of thing. If they're or they immerse themselves in church and and a lot of people fall away during that same phase because everything comes at them at once and they can't they can't deal with it or they're not equipped to deal with it. Um, but then when you enter the second stage of discipleship, uh, there's an invitation to a deeper maturity that is much more comfortable with the mystery of God, much more comfortable with things like slowing down, contemplation, being still. Um, the kind of relational aspect that doesn't necessarily feed 24 seven on figuring everything out. Uh, the beginning phases of it are there and the old people that we know um, who are in their last stage of life and who are deeply mature seem to have been in that place for a very long time, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I mean, I'm not trying to tie this up with a little bow or anything, but I think that, learning to appreciate the artistry of God is one of the important factors in transitioning into a stage of radical discipleship and contemplation. Like there's a reason that people who make it to the second stage of discipleship and who go into that um, zone of contemplation and deep intimacy with God, or at least begin it, why other traditions outside of the American Protestant bubble start to creep in and they become much more liturgical in their faith, and they appreciate symbols more. They appreciate um, things that seemed weird, you know, when we were younger, things like praying the same thing over and over again, or reading monks, or reading the Desert Fathers, and reading contemplatives and things like that that are outside of our tradition, maybe, but that we appreciate what they have to say and what they have to teach us. Uh, and there's a reason that those people tend to be wildly artistic, in the way that they mm. write and think, and those traditions seem to have a much wider paradigm for things like symbols and um, imagery and aesthetics than the 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 you know American Protestant modern American Protestant bubble often has. I am confident we could keep talking the rest of the day and still have more to say. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. I don't, and we're we're past the hour now. But um, not take as much time as you want. But you've mentioned two books specifically. One is a book about art, and then a book about deconstruction. So if you don't mind, because both of those are intimately tied to your own experience, I know. But would you say a little bit about both those things? Yeah, I wrote a book about basically everything we've been talking about for the last hour and a half um, called With All Its Teeth, uh, Sex, Violence, Profanity, and the Death of Christian Art. And it's kind of like a biblical theology of offensive art. Start in Genesis and try to present a theological case for the importance of art appreciation and specifically art that alienates the audience, offensive art. Um, and then I... Uh, I spent some time with that book and, uh, you know, I have like a, a foot in the world of the publishing industry. Um, but I had another book that I had just finished writing called death to deconstruction. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, 
got more traction with that book. Uh, there was an urgency there that isn't necessarily, you know, you'd have to convince people that they need to learn about art history. <laughs> but yeah. deconstruction is kind of like there isn't, and everyone knows someone who has yeah. deconstructed their yeah. faith. Um, so that book is coming out next year, like formally and, you know, in bookstores and online and everything. Uh, and I kind of I, shelved is the wrong word, but I was going to self publish the art book. But now that I had like a, um, a publishing deal with the deconstruction book, I figured I'm going to wait and see if I, I don't think that that conversation is going anywhere and people need convincing one way or the other. So it's not like it's going to become the hot topic yeah. next year. Um, so well, you never know. I, yeah, well, let's, let's see. Um, so, but I mean, the deconstruction book comes out next year. I'm hoping that the art book will be not long behind it. Maybe the, the second book. I also hope that too, as well. Yeah. So, so what, um, and don't let me cut Ryan off again, but w broadly speaking, what, what else do you have coming up or what else have, have you been working on? I know you're fairly prolific in the sense that you work on a lot of different things. So what's, uh, what's been cooking? Um, I also have a new novel that's with an agent that's looking for a, a publishing home right now. I've done self-publishing for so long, uh, and I was able to do it with a teeny tiny sliver of, um, I, I don't, success is not the word, but sustainability. Uh, because there are, there's a tiny group of people that kept up with me and showbread and I would write a new novel and self publish it. And they'd be like, yeah, I'll read this. Sure. Uh, but you know, like at this point in my journey as an author, I thought that I wanted, I, it, their rumor word on the street, kind of like the music industry, <laughs> this, the publishing publishing industry is not in great shape. Uh, but I wanted to try and see if there was a place for me in that world. So I uh, finished a new novel and then rather than just crank it out to the, my existing audience, I've gone through the long, tedious process of working with a literary agent and trying to find um, a home for it. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with that yet. I still um, mess around with music as well. The The band that... I've been in post showbread it's called the bell jar and we post, you know, pandemic lockdowns got together to in the studio for the first time a couple of weeks ago and Ooh. are back in like a, a rhythm of meeting together to be in the studio and just mess around with stuff. So, uh, we had like, um, a, a fairly decent pile of material that we had completed and then everything shut down. We couldn't even come into our own, studio the the restrictions specifically in washington and portland were uh pretty strict yeah so uh we came back into the studio and opened up the files and we're like holy crap we actually finished a bunch of stuff so. <laughs> man I, I love that first album i mean and, and it's love is a weird word to to apply to uh to music that is that um challenging and kind of confrontational but uh, that's that's part of why I like it. It doesn't it, it does and doesn't remind me of anything. So no. <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. So yeah, I, the I, beauty I recommend of, that to people. Yeah, the beauty of post showbread life is that showbread, even though it was a, a very small band, existed uh, in the industry enough that 
there was a kind of rhyme and reason to everything that we had to do. It was like there were album cycles. That's a term that you use in the industry. Yeah. It's like you you need a, time to make a new album. You need a check from the record label. Then you start working on it, and then you have to tour for it. And, um, and these th- were things we all gratefully did. Uh, but Showbread got itself into the, the situation where in order to keep doing the things that we were doing without compromising, we needed a certain level of... Um, industry participation we needed like a label to pay for records and you know it takes like as ridiculous as it sounds to people like tens of thousands of dollars to make a a record um with the kind of people that we worked with and it was it was the point where do we want to regress to the diy roots that started us can issue a band that can do that and the kind of unanimous answer was like no um i think at this point it's just time to stop uh, but the bell jar can't the bell jar can embrace its own weirdness and its DIY aesthetic and we can meet in our own studio and mess around with ideas and like Taylor said make something that's like I don't know who in the world's gonna like this <laughs> but we didn't pay tens of thousands of dollars to make it and it was fun you know it's, it's kind of like being in a local band again yeah well showbread not being a local band but y'all have a show coming up do you not we do yeah isn't that weird yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Our friend uh, Chad Johnson called me, this is like two years ago now, and said, I'm going to um, revisit Furnace Fest. Furnace Fest was a, like an independent music festival in Alabama that used to happen annually, and it became really big for the kind of thing that it was. And Showbread used to play there, you know, circa 2002, three, and four, or something like that. Um, before Furnace Fest stopped and Chad, the guy who ran Furnace Fest, went to work at Tooth & Nail Records. He was our A&R guy at Tooth & Nail. We stayed friends for many years, um, are still in you know re- regular communication. So he called and said, do you think that you could get Showbread together to play this thing? And ordinarily, I would say, no, that's dumb. But there's <laughs> a certain... He, the way he pitched it, and he was right, he was just like, it's, I'm trying to get a lot of people that used to play it to come play it again as if like this, you know, <laughs> blast from the past yeah. these dinosaurs are coming back out to play the <laughs> um, show. And I said, Oh, I guess that kind of sounds fun. I said, I, I'll ask them. I don't know what they're going to say. You know, three of the showbread people are all st- still together in the Pacific Northwest. We go to church together in a community together. Um, but the others are spread out across the world. And I'm only in regular conversation with one of them. You know, I still talk to ivory every week and, uh, not that say I'm on bad terms with anybody, but the other ones I only text when I think of an inside joke, you know, and you just <laughs> yeah. text them a, a out of context inside joke and then they write back, ha 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 ha, or, you know, whatever. Uh, so I reached out to everyone and they were like, yeah, I would do it. Um, so I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mayhem if the 10 year nihilism 10 year is any indication it's yeah it'll make a good story if nothing else. it will hopefully we won't be horrible i just told everyone like i'm i'm gonna be fine <laughs> you guys better get in shape remember how oh, to no. play guitar uh, oh my gosh oh that's wonderful uh man there, there's more could be said, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it right there. Ryan, do you have anything to add? No, that's great. I appreciate you talking with us and just sharing. Good to hear just, uh, I don't know, about everything you've got going on. And, and I, I like that you said, you know, at some point there's got to be a revival. So I think there could be a whole conversation around that and <laughs> how that takes place. But uh, that's interesting. And, you know, I, I think we're probably steeped in a good time for that with COVID and how it shuts so much down. 
um, to see the need for for that to be there and for people to have things to take in. So, Thanks, great. man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys. Appreciate your thoughtful um, questions and what you guys are doing. And as you know, I mean, I hate to, this sounds so bad, but it's nice to talk to people you agree with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, if we, if we talk long enough, we can find some stuff, I'm sure. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Next time. Next time <laughs> we'll right. fight. Oh, did, did you hear him say there'd be a next time? Because I heard him say I heard it. I heard it. Uh, if you guys come up with something to fight about. Oh, we <laughs> find some things. Give us a little bit. We'll have it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, man, thank you so much. I appreciate you investing in the time and then staying a little bit longer than you thought that you might. So uh, cut loose anytime. Thank you again. Can't thank you enough, honestly. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a good one. See ya. If you'd like to take a deeper dive into some of what Josh has had going on and currently has going on, there, of course, is the Showbread discography. We played a few songs from that uh, throughout the episode here. He's also currently making music in the Bell Jar. You can get their first album, I Infest, Therefore I Am, on all platforms that you would want to find it on. If you want to keep up with what he is currently writing, you can go to thewordvirus.com or joshdies.com. And his most recent novel, Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People, which is a fantastic title, he serialized into a podcast, and you can find it there on the word virus. Other than that, he is a pastor at Van City Church in Vancouver, Washington, right outside Portland. They also do a podcast, uh, and mostly it's just him teaching. And we are we had such a good time talking to Josh, and you heard him say that he'd be back, so <laughs> we definitely want to make that happen. But before that, we're going to talk to a whole bunch of other folks. We're really excited to have these conversations. This is a subject that's really close to both Ryan and I's hearts, and we thank you for joining us, and we look forward to the rest of the ride.